You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Amen. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, will you grab that and go with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You'll find stacks of Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. You can grab one now. You can grab one on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. And if you don't know your way around the Bible, we've put all the verses that we'll be studying today on the screen so you can track along with us. Will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God. So listen carefully to these words that come from God through the Apostle John to us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Ambrose Bierce was a 19th century writer known mostly for his short stories, many of which have a dark or a gloomy nature. One of his most famous works is An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, written in 1886, just after the end of the Civil War. The story begins with Peyton Farquhar, a civilian passionately devoted to the southern cause, standing on the edge of an old railroad bridge in northern Alabama, some 20 feet above a river. Farquhar's wrists are bound behind his back, and around his neck is a noose that is tied to a beam overhead. And soldiers from the northern army surround him. Farquhar stares into the swirling water below. He watches a piece of driftwood being carried downstream. He shuts his eyes in an effort to forget about his impending execution and to focus on his wife and children at home. He longs to be with them. Then the captain of the northern army nods to the sergeant. And the sergeant steps away from the board that have been supporting Farquhar. There's a quick drop, but no sudden stop. The rope breaks, and Farquhar plummets to the river below. He manages to free his hands of the ropes and lifts the noose from his neck, and he looks back to the bridge where he sees the soldiers readying their weapons. He swims with all his might, A cannonball lands in the water just beside him. But he manages to catch the rapids, and the river carries him out of range. 
far, far in the distance, where the rapids settle, Farquhar climbs onto the bank. He weeps with joy and makes a mad dash for the forest. He travels the entire day, the thought of his family urging him on. And finally, he arrives at the gate of his home. He knows this gate. He has seen it so many times before, but never, never has he been so happy to see it. He walks toward his house. His wife steps down from the veranda to meet him. She's more beautiful than ever. Farquhar reaches out to embrace her. And that's when the noose tightens around his neck. Peyton Farquhar is dead. His broken body swinging gently beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. Such a dark story. Why share that on a Sunday morning? You know, it's only in the famous last lines of that story that the reader becomes aware of what has truly happened. Farquhar was never really released. It was all a dream, a daydream. He was set free only in the world of his mind. Friends, is it possible, is it possible that you have been set free only in the world of your mind? Is it possible that your salvation is something imaginary? If only we could know, if only we could be certain of our spiritual condition, if only we could have absolute certainty of our spiritual status. Are we on the path of eternal life or are we not? If only we could know. Ah, oh, but we can. We can. That's the good news. See, in this study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that we started just last Sunday, we are discovering how we can have assurance. 1st John is a letter written so that we can have assurance, or what we might call Christian certainty. We can know beyond a doubt that we truly belong to the Lord, that we are indeed on the path of eternal life. Remember the purpose statement that I introduced last week. John tells us why he's writing this letter in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know. You see, you don't have to just wonder. There are people who do not believe in Jesus because they've never heard of him. And these people are uninformed. There are others who have heard all about Jesus, and yet they're not ready to believe his claims. These people are the unconvinced. Still, there are others who think that they are on good terms with God who think they have been set free, but in reality, they have not. These are the Peyton Farquhars. These are the unaware. They're self-deceived. And still there are others, others who are on good terms with God, truly do belong to God, and yet still they find themselves at times doubting their salvation, wondering, do I really belong to Him? 
Am I really secure? 1 John is written specifically for the unaware and the uncertain. John tells us, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may have Christian certainty. So, how do we know? John gives us a series of tests. Tests that will help us determine with absolute certainty that we do belong to the Lord. Last week in chapter 1, we looked at two important theological themes with which he begins the letter, including this idea that God is light. Today, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, John will give us three indications of intimacy with this God who is light. How do I know? How do I know if I belong to God? John says, look for these pieces of evidence in your life. Here they are. First, hatred of our sin combined with confidence in Jesus' sacrifice. That's the first one. Second, obedience to God's word. And third, love for one another. Now, before we get into each one, notice that I said these are pieces of evidence that we belong to God. These are not the things that save us. It's not by me hating sin or or obeying the word that secures my salvation. No, these are, in John's words, evidence, indications that I do, in fact, belong to the God who is light. Because if I'm in fellowship with the God who is light... That means I have been brought out of the darkness and into his light. There is change. There is change. So let's think about that change. First, the first indication he mentions in this passage is hatred of our sin combined with confidence in Jesus' sacrifice. Look at verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, John is not the biological father of the Christians that he's writing to. This choice of the term children, it shows us his affection. He's writing as a spiritual father, as a pastor who loves the congregation and is not timid about making his desire known. He states it very clearly here. My desire for you, church, is this. Do not sin. That's the desire. Do not sin. And notice he doesn't talk about a particular sin here. He simply uses the term sin as a junk drawer term, including all of the things that violate God's character and his commands, thus displeasing him and destroying our relationships. John wants us to see sin for what it truly is, rebellion that destroys our relationships. And in seeing sin for what it truly is, he wants us to hate it. Hate it the way God hates it. He wants us to see sin as something God-awful and then to fight it, to flee from it. Do not sin, he says. And then, in the very next verse, he says this. But if anyone does sin, do not sin, brothers and sisters, but... See how well John knows this? If anyone does sin, 
If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You remember last Sunday, for those of you who were here, when I said that being a Christian, it does not mean that we are without sin. It means we know what to do with our sin. Confess it. Being a Christian does not mean that we have no need for forgiveness. It means that we know where to find forgiveness. Jesus. But what's so special about Jesus? Why is he the one, the only one, who can provide that forgiveness? What makes him so special? Well, it begins with his identity. Remember, I also said this to you last week, you will never understand the ministry of Jesus until you understand his identity. You'll never understand what Jesus came to do until you understand who he is. Jesus is the eternal, uncreated God, the word of life, John says in chapter 1. And he was made manifest. He came to us. He took on flesh. Jesus is God with me, remember? The eternal God came to this earth. He is the God-man. That's his identity. And it shows us what he came to do. The God-man came to restore the broken relationship between God and humanity. That's his ministry. But how does he do it? Sounds good, but how? How does Jesus accomplish his ministry or his mission? It's right here. Don't miss this. It's right here in verses 2 and 3. He is our advocate with the Father and... He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, what does that mean? Let's take these terms one at a time. Advocate. An advocate is someone who appears on behalf of another. That's what the word means. Someone who appears on behalf of another. John is using the term here in a legal context. So picture a courtroom. Not just any courtroom. This is God the Father's courtroom. And you and I are standing right there in God the Father's courtroom. And as we stand in this courtroom, we have no argument to make. Nothing we can say because the testimony of Scripture is indisputable. All are sinners. So that means you and I stand in this courtroom guilty. No doubt about it. We're guilty and thus we deserve judgment. But there is another person in this courtroom. It's not just you and me. There's another person. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus, the righteous one, is there as our advocate before the Father, John says. Which means that Jesus is there. And he's righteous. He lived a life of obedience that you and I have not lived. And he is there standing before the Father to say... Don't look at them. Don't look at their lives. Look at mine. Look at the life I lived for them. See, where you and I have been impatient and unkind, downright hateful, even to people we say we love, Jesus lived a life of patience and gentleness 
and compassion, perfectly according to God's standards. So Jesus, as our advocate before the Father, can say, don't look to their lives, look to the life I lived for them. That's what it means when it says he's our advocate. But there's more. John also says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. See, it's one thing for Jesus to say, I have lived and done all of the right things that they didn't do. But that doesn't solve the problem of the wrong things we have done. It doesn't solve the problem of the wrong things that you and I have done, the sins we have committed. What about those? When John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he means that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. That his death on the cross dealt with our sins, all of them, for good and all. Jesus' death on the cross erases the record of our wrongs. Don't, don't you see what this means? It means that you don't have to punish yourself. You can stop beating yourself up because Jesus took the beating for you. Jesus bore the wrath, the holy anger of God the Father. Jesus bore the judgment that should have been ours. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, past, present, and future. So now put these two words together, advocate, and propitiation come back into the courtroom with me because that's where you and I are and here's what all this means it means that Jesus is there and he not only says don't look at their lives look at the life I lived for them but he also says don't look at the sins they've committed look at the death I died for them look at my sacrifice I bore the judgment I bore the judgment. This is what it means for Jesus to be both our advocate before the Father and the propitiation for our sins. This is good news because it means that we are now free to leave this courtroom. We are acquitted. Now, is this acquittal automatic? I mean, John talks here about Jesus being the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So is this something that automatically is applied to everyone? Is this some sort of a universalistic claim? No. No, when John talks about Jesus being the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, he's making a distinction between Jesus and the gods of antiquity. See, in the ancient world, According to pagan mythology, in the ancient world, gods were limited geographically. They were limited geographically. So when you were in the mountains, you would call upon the mountain gods. And when you were at sea, you would call upon the gods of the sea. John says, Jesus' sacrifice, it knows no boundaries. This sacrifice is powerful everywhere for all types of people. See, the God of the gospel has no boundaries. 
But there is a requirement of us here. We must receive this good news. This news that Jesus is our advocate before the Father, that he is the propitiation for our sins, that this is a powerful sacrifice, we must receive it by faith. As John puts it in his most famous verse ever, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his Son, that whoever believes, whoever believes in him will not perish will be on the path of eternal life. So I ask you today, have you believed? It really is that simple. Believe in Jesus, who he is, his identity, and his ministry, what he has done for you, and you will be saved. Now, put all of this together, all of this in these opening verses. Remember I said that the first indication of intimacy with God here is both of these things, a hatred of our sin combined with this confidence in Jesus' sacrifice. He's our advocate. He's our propitiation. We must have both. It's problematic if you see in yourself a hatred of your sin. Man, I hate it, but I don't know what to do with it. That's a problem. It's also problematic if you see in yourself this great confidence in Jesus' sacrifice, but you're not really disgusted by your sin. You don't really mourn over your sin. Because you see, if you belong to the God who is light, if you belong to Jesus, the Son, then you will desire to serve Him, to live for Him. So we need both of these according to John. We need a disgust or detested by our sin and trust in Jesus that he is the one who has dealt with our sin for good and all. That's the first indication. Here's the second. The second way we can know that we have fellowship with the one true God, that we are on the path of eternal life, is according to John, obedience. Obedience to God's word. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. For John, truth is not something that we stack or store on a shelf somewhere so that it just sits there and collects dust. No, for John, truth is something that is lived. Knowing God means living the truth, practicing the truth, or as he puts it here, keeping the commandments, keeping the commandments of God. In other words, if you are a genuine child of God, if you're walking in the light, there will be a certain striving in your life. You will be characterized by this striving. Now, John can't mean that we're perfect because he's already talked about us being sinners, right? So he doesn't, he's not talking about perfection here, but he is talking about striving. Now, sometimes people hear that word striving and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that doesn't sound like gospel. That sounds like law. Sounds like salvation by works. What do you mean striving? And to that, I would say, if you have no room in your theology for this idea of striving, then you have gutted the gospel of its power. 
You've gutted it. The gospel transforms us. It gives us new desires, new abilities. We desire to serve the God who has saved us. So yes, we will be characterized by striving. You see, gospel-centered Christianity, it's not opposed to the idea of effort. It's opposed to the idea of earning. Do you see the difference? Gospel-centered Christianity is not opposed to the idea of effort. It's opposed to the idea of earning. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth is really helpful here. He explains the difference between bad works and good works. And here's what Barth says. Barth says, a bad work is anything you do. Anything you do if you're doing it with the intention of earning God's favor. So something that on the surface looks good, like being kind to your spouse, that actually is a bad work, Bart says, if you're doing it with the intention of earning God's favor. A good work, then, are those things we do, not to earn God's favor, but to declare that we belong to Him. We're not trying to earn his love. We're declaring, Jesus has saved me. I belong to him. That's a good work. Now, do these good works require effort? Yeah. Yeah, they do. Ladies, does it require effort to be kind to your husband? Yeah, I know some of your husbands. It definitely requires effort. No doubt about it. I pray for you every day. But never forget this. It's effort as a child of God. You're already in the family. You're not trying to earn your way in. That would make it a bad work. It's effort as a child of God. That's the type of striving that John is talking about here when he talks about obedience to God's word. One more. We'll be very brief with this last one. The third indication. Oh, one more verse here that I forgot to point out. This one's very important. He gives us a kind of restatement of this same point before he transitions to his final indication. He talks about walking as Jesus walked. This is not really any different than saying keep the commandments, but here's what John does here. He gives us the picture that goes with the written instructions in the manual. We have the written instructions, the commandments of God. Then, in the next verse, he says, look to Jesus, the one who lived righteously. The one who kept these commandments. And you should be Jesus-like. That's what it means to keep the commandments of God. Now, with that in mind, he transitions to the last point here. The third indication of intimacy with God is love for one another. Love for one another. Verses 9 and 10, the end of the passage, we'll close with this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, he's actually still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. The noun love appears about a hundred times in the New Testament. Roughly a quarter of those are in John's writings. John cares a lot about love. Jesus himself said that love is the clearest mark 
of being his follower. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And in this final paragraph here of chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, when John talks about this old commandment of Jesus being in some way new, he probably means that there's a deeper meaning, a deeper significance now to this love command. See, before we, we heard Jesus talk about love, but now, in light of the cross, we've seen that love. It's new in the sense of it's deeper or maybe even a higher form of love. See, according to Jesus, what John relays here, the deepest or the highest form of love is this. It is the giving of the self for the express good of the other. That's it. That's the deepest form of love there is. The giving of the self for the express good of the other. That's what we see in Jesus himself on the cross. And that's the type of love that we're called for. John doesn't treat love like an emotion. He doesn't treat it like some sentimental abstraction. It's not something we bottle up within us. It's something we uncork and pour out all over the world. Beginning right here in the house of God with our brothers and our sisters. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to move into a time of communion. But as I said at the beginning of the service, we're going to celebrate communion a bit differently today. Here at the front on the stage are baskets that have the communion elements in them. In just a few moments, I'm going to ask you, whenever you're ready, to come to the front and to take your own communion elements. But before you receive them, I'm going to ask you to do something. In my home, we have a little rhythm, a daily rhythm. At the end of each day, we try to slow down, put the devices and all the other distractions away. We gather around for a meal and a conversation. And typically, we talk about four things. Best thing from the day, Worst thing from the day, something we're thankful for, and something we should pray about. That's kind of a daily rhythm in my home. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do today as we celebrate communion. Come forward and get your elements, but then I want you to find someone else in the family of God here. Just one person, whoever the Lord brings to your mind. And I want you to encourage them. Tell them that you're thankful for them. And you know what would be even better? Tell them why. Tell them why. We don't often do this. Look each other in the eye and say, Brother, I love you. As my brother in Christ, I love you and I'm thankful for you. Let me tell you why. But you must see, this is the type of love that John's talking about here. It's not a sentimental abstraction. We don't bottle it up. We uncork this stuff. So we're going to do that right now. I'm going to lead us into a prayer of confession. The words of administration like we normally do. And then just, we're going to have some music playing. And whenever you're ready, you come and grab the elements and you find someone to talk to. Now look, we got a lot of people here today. I was not expecting this many folks. You're going to run into each other. 
This is going to be messy and sloppy, and you know what it should be because that's exactly how love is. It's exactly how it is. This is real-world stuff. No assembly lines. You just figure it out. The Lord will guide you. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you humbly. So very thankful. Because we know that we are sinners. God, we have sinned against you. We have not loved you with our whole selves. We have not loved our neighbors the way you teach us to love. We come before you asking for forgiveness because we know where to find it. Forgive us for our actions and our words and our attitudes, the things we have done and the things we have left undone. We remember you, Jesus, our advocate, the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We don't have to punish ourselves. We don't have to beat ourselves up. Jesus, you took the beating for us. You love us that much. We confess our sins to you, God, today, openly, nothing to hide. You know us. And we claim that wonderful promise of your word that when we confess our sins like this, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We stand before you, God, forgiven, cleansed, all because of Jesus. We celebrate him. On the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread, drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take as much time as you need. The elements are here at the front. Encourage each other. Love one another. Celebrate the gospel. Believers, whenever you're ready, you can come.